Imagine a teaching staff that was fundamentally on the same page about what works and what doesn't work in the classroom. What would this mean for engagement, efficacy, agency, and turnover? 30 plus years of science of learning research has delivered this foundation. Unfortunately, much of it has never made it to teachers. Until now. A new program called The Learning Blueprint, developed by neuroscientist and former podcast guest Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, has proven effective at helping schools understand and embed key science of learning principles into everyday practice. It won't replace any teaching systems that you may currently use, but it'll make them work better. You can learn more by visiting lme.global/smart. That's lme.global/smart. Tanya, you've been a, a business entrepreneur and an education entrepreneur. What, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? That's a great question, Tom. I, I spent my early career working in beer and realized working in corporate America that there was something more that I wanted to do and something different, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what that was. So after I, after I finished my master's program in entrepreneurship, I started to try and start a few different things that followed my interest. One was um, like a personal training, one was in marketing, um, and nothing really stuck or took. One was called Gear for Girls. I was going to open this thing that was all um, outdoor equipment that was women-specific. At the time, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was hard to find the women-specific stuff. Um, but it's finding that Finding that thing that you need that is missing in the world that you also recognize that lots of other people need, and how can you start to solve that problem? That's kind of where I see the heart of entrepreneurship. Um, of course, entrepreneurship in practice is a very different thing. That's more of a Jack, or in my case, Jane of all trades organ you know, organization, and really you know, what I've been focusing on recently now that we're five years into the launch of our school is really leadership and culture and thinking back to some of the business books and business strategies and the quote of, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day and looking at, we've built so many amazing strategies and methodology for education now is how do we really get the culture of what we're building right? Um, so it's, you know, the entrepreneurship is solving that need, figuring out how to solve it well, and figuring out how to serve the people within your organization as well as the others, you know, who are utilizing your products. Yeah, I love that. It's meeting a need, solving a problem, creating impact, delivering value. Uh, I'm Tom Van Erk. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. And today uh, we're joined by Tanya Sheckley. She is the founder and uh head of Up Academy, a, a, a progressive elementary school in San Mateo, California. She's also the author of a new book called Rebel Educator, Creating Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet. Tanya, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm really excited for our conversation. Did you grow up in Minnesota? I did not. You I grew up to... in Wisconsin. <laughs> Oh, and but so that caused ruffled some feathers when you went to Minnesota. <laughs> as long as we didn't talk but about you, the Packers or the Vikings, it was all okay. So, at Minnesota, you you, you majored in um, public health and dance, and you you've also, uh, as you just mentioned, you've 
launched a fitness business. It, it looks like um, movement, wellness, and fitness are a strand in your life. Is that true? And and if so, um, like how and where have you thought about incorporating that into a school community? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, yes, movement and fitness has always been a part of my life. Um, and honestly, I didn't realize it when I was a dancer. Dancing was something that I love to do, but I didn't think of it as fitness and I didn't think of it as movement to maintain my brain health or my mental outlook on the world. You know, it was just something that I love to do. Uh, after, after I quit dancing and I finished college, um, I was a snowboard instructor. I was a mountain bike racer. Um, I continued to stay active, but in different things. And it wasn't until one of my friends that I was out snowboarding with one day, I was like, Hey, yeah, you can do this. You're an athlete. Let's go. And no one had ever called me an athlete before that moment. Um, I was like, I'm not an athlete. We're just out playing in the snow. Like, <laughs> but I guess snowboarding a hundred days a year, it qualifies you as athletic. Um, and after, after I left snowboarding, you know, I moved and I mentioned I worked for a beer company for 10 years and I probably didn't do anything really athletic for about the first five of those. And I, I really recognized the toll that it was taking on my mental thought processes and my personal life. Um, and so when I was, when I was 29, I decided to run a marathon because I wasn't on track, had never run. I was the kid in school who walked until my PE teacher could see me. And then I would jog until he couldn't see me anymore. So a marathon clearly made sense. Um, but I started running and I joined a running group and I found this amazing social network. And I also found that when my body was in motion and doing new things that my brain would also be in motion and doing new things. Um, and throughout, you know, the past, well, <laughs> 15 years or so, give or take a few, um, I've definitely found that to be true. The periods of time or the seasons in my life when I am most active, then I am most healthy and I am most productive. And so I found that correlation to be very important for myself um, to be able to, to continue to move forward. How, how have you incorporated elements of, of wellness, um, and fitness at Up Academy? Yeah. So one of the things that we do that's unique to our school is a multi-sensory learning approach. So just like I've found that my brain works best when I'm in motion and, and I'm an adult, so I can separate those two things and, and it'll still work for me. We find that from the neuroscience of learning, we learn best when our bodies are in different states of activity, different states of motion, and when we're almost in kind of a, a mini flow state where we're not focusing necessarily on what our body's doing, but we can focus on what we're thinking about or learning about because our body is otherwise occupied. And especially for children who really need to move and learn, you know, they need to move and they need to play and their bodies integrate learning through play. They need that time and that movement. When we can do that movement also while they're learning, that learning becomes stickier. It stays in their brain. They have a deeper understanding of what's happening because their body was in a state of motion when they were learning the thing that they're learning. So for example, we often teach um, phonics and uh, review phonics while kids are jumping on a trampoline. 
They might review sight words while they're throwing scarves up in the air over a blower and chasing them down. Um, They do letter pattern recognition while they're doing hand fluency on the wall um, and crossing midline. Um, And these are for the really little kids who are are just learning to read. But by incorporating that multisensory approach, that motion and physicality with the learning and academic and mental aspect of it really helps students to gain that learning faster and for it to stay stickier so that they can use it and transfer it to other places. Yeah, we also incorporate yoga. We have PE. We've utilized a local gymnastics place and taken our students there. We get out on regular field trips, so we try and stay active outside of that as well. Um, And we have a full indoor uh, sensory gym um, that's in our school that students can use for brain breaks as well. Oh, I love that. Uh, This, Tanya, this reminds me of, um, there's a recent Huberman Labs podcast, Huberman's uh, a biologist nearby you at uh, Stanford in He's done a couple of podcasts on the links between movement and learning, and he, I think, reinforced many of the concepts that uh, that you talked about. Tanya, you um, had three children, and and in in your book, you uh, and on your podcast, you've talked about how some of their learning um, differences really influenced uh, the, the formation of Up Academy. How, how did your own three kids inspire your school? So our, our school was really founded and inspired by my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter, Eliza, had cerebral palsy. And finding the right educational fit for her, she was super observant, super curious, super social, Um, but also mobility challenge. She couldn't walk. She used a wheelchair to get around. She was nonverbal, really presented a challenge. And so we had done, I'd spent the first five years of her life looking, looking for the right therapies, the right treatments, the right things that were going to help her progress. We worked with specialists all over the country and all over the world on, on speaking, on eating, on movement. Um, And then when we got to the school district, they just weren't willing to incorporate any of the things that we knew that we had learned that we knew that worked. Um, you know, and, and part of that is they're constrained by their policies and their procedures. They're constrained by their budget. They're constrained by staff. Um, but they're also constrained by they just don't have to do what's best for students. They only need to provide a certain level of education and accessibility. Um, and I became really frustrated with that. And I really thought about it from a perspective of all students. Like if if every parent who wanted to send their child to public school was faced with this, you know, kind of this wall of them saying, well, yeah, but we're not actually going to do the things that are good for your child. We're just going to do the things that we do. It made me wonder how many people would really send their kids to public school at that point. Um, but this is what we do to our students with disabilities. And I just I felt like there should be a better way. Um, So we started talking to other families, started looking at other ways of creating education. Um, And during this process, uh, my oldest daughter unexpectedly passed away. Um, So it it set us back quite a bit and stopped us for a moment of, you know, this doing this for Eliza. She's no longer here. Is this really something that I still want to pursue and continue with? 
Um, and the resounding answer from myself, from my husband, from my family was, yes, you know, we had learned so much from her. She had taught us so much about what was possible for her and so many other kids um, that we really wanted to move forward and do what we could to create this new methodology of education that then, you know, the goal was to create the methodology and then take it and share it around the world, be able to train other schools, be able to work with other educators to be able to share this inclusive project-based learning approach. And, and so we moved forward with that. My other two children, as you mentioned, are currently in my school. My daughter this year was our first graduate. Um, and for her, she's twice exceptional. Um, we didn't know. She's also dyslexic which because of her twice exceptionality, her, uh, her giftedness is in patterns and recognition and puzzles and visual spatial awareness. So it would take her three times to read a page, but her brain would then put together the puzzles of all the words and the letters that were, her brain was also moving around because it saw them as a puzzle, not as words, um, but then figure it all out. So it was taking her twice as long to read things as it was taking her peers, but her comprehension was so strong and she was so determined to read and love to read so much that I think in a public school, it probably wouldn't have been caught because she was reading just at the lower part of grade level. She wasn't falling behind. She wasn't appearing to struggle. Um, but this was, I feel like this was the gift that her sister gave her was the school that had the small class sizes, that had the ability to get to know students, that had a multi-sensory curriculum and research-based innovative ways of looking at students and looking at curriculum where her teacher really said, look, yes, everything on paper is in line, but something's not connecting. We should have this evaluated. Um, and so... You know, like I said, I, I think it's the gift that her sister gave her um, and it's allowed us as a school, you know, not just her experience, but the experience of several other school, you know, students in the school um, of similar and differing learning challenges that we're able to see that we're able to individualize that um, and able to make learning fun for all of the students, which really is the way education should be. You know, it shouldn't be a slog. You shouldn't fight to go to school. It should be exciting. It should be interesting. It should be engaging. Kids should want to be there and to be with their friends. Um, Tanya, you called that a, a progressive school and you've given us a pretty good description. But when you say a progressive school, what's the, what's the two or three sentence summary of what that means to you? By progressive, we really strive to be looking at the latest research and methodology of what's working not only for our school and our students, but other innovations in education around the world and trying those out on an ongoing basis. Um, we really aim to be fluid in our methodology and keeping what works, adapting or getting rid of what doesn't work pretty quickly. Um, for our student population and to meet their interests um, and really focusing on real world project-based um, curriculum that allows for student agency and interest. 
Um, so often drawing in current events, but also leaving lots of room within the structure of what we want students to learn to give them space for what students want to learn. Hmm. That's a beautiful description. And how many students do you serve? And now that you've had a daughter graduate, any any thoughts about adding grades to Up Academy? It's so funny you should ask. <laughs> um, yes, we have just subleased a larger building. We are planning to launch a middle school in fall of 2023, and we'll go through grades six, seven, eight. So my daughter will be one grade above that and won't be there, but my son will benefit and partake in that program. Um, uh, we are a micro school. Um, so we have right now we have three small mixed age classes uh, with a maximum of 10 students each. So we'll have about 30 students this year in our lower school. And then our middle school will be designed to take an additional 30 to 40 students. So our goal as a micro school community and as we're looking to branch out and help others to open up academies, we're really looking at keeping schools lower than 90 students. Um, understanding that when we look at the sociology of community building, uh, 90 people is about the maximum that you can make solid social connections with um, in any given point of time. And that's a, a really important part of our school is having the multi-age and interconnectedness of the community. I I so appreciate what you've created, and I uh, I'm fascinated by your commitment to sharing it with others. And uh, Tanya, you've been doing that through professional learning experiences. You, you're coaching people on starting new schools. You launched a podcast uh, where you often give tips on, on school starting. What, why the, the drive to share what you're learning about um, school, school formation? I think there are several reasons. The first is at, at my heart, I'm still an entrepreneur and I love starting stuff and I get excited to help other people start stuff. Um, and that's super fun and energizing for me. And if when I can mix that with the passion that other people have for starting schools that are going to serve their learners or their children and their community, that's even more exciting. Um, you mentioned I, I do have a course. And when I talk about one of the first things I talk about in the class to helping others start schools is like I, I started mine for a very specific reason. And most people that are there are looking to start a school for a pretty specific reason. But the more schools that we can create and the more ideas that we can put into the world, the better we can serve our communities and our students. And that just benefits all of us. You know, my way works for a, a broad amount of people, but it, it's not for everyone. And so we need those other ideas. We need those other schools. We need those other places. And we need other people trying the new things um, so that we can all learn from each other and grow together. Um, so that's a part of it. Uh, part of it's definitely that, uh, you know, the school was started because I didn't find what I was looking for in a public school or in any of the private schools in the area. And I live in the Bay Area. There are a lot of private schools here um, and schools for, for every type of learning challenge, learning disability, um, any diagnosis, 
or just looking for affluent private schools when we think about, you know, kind of boarding school type schools or language schools, like they're all here. But what I was looking for wasn't here. And I know there are lots of other families and lots of other students out there who aren't getting really what they need from their school. And so if we can share our methodology, if we can share a story or a tidbit or even just one little thing that one educator can do differently in their classroom that's going to support a student, help them love learning, help them feel connected to their teacher and their school, and help them want to be a part of that community and want to go to school every day, then that's a small piece that I can do or, you know, that our school and our methodology and our educators can contribute to helping the the greater good of the next generation, if you will. And that's that's really the the greater purpose is how can we help everyone to serve an inclusive student body to the best of their ability. Tanya, um, I, I imagine your book is was authored in the in the same vein as a, an effort to serve other families thinking um, about school formation. Um, I love the title of your book and your podcast, Rebel Educator. Uh, say a little bit about that. Yeah, I think like as we were talking a little before we started recording, I feel like people get into education either because they were straight A students and they love it or they were always in trouble and they hate it. And I'm kind of in the middle there where I was a straight A student. I didn't love school, but I I knew the school game. I was good at it. It was easy for me. Um, but I want to do something different. And that idea of being a rebel is how do you disrupt the status quo? How do you challenge the tradition of what's always been done? Um, and so I'm, I'm coming from the outside. Like I said, my background previously was in beer. I had kids. Um, I joined education late in life. Um, and of course, you know, when you have absolutely no background in education, launching a school is the perfect thing to do. But it also gives me a really interesting perspective as to use an overused term as a disruptor to education because I am coming at it from how do we best serve students? Not what are the policies and procedures? What have we always done? How can we just tweak what we've always done to be a little bit different? But really starting from the ground up, how do we support our students and create a student-centered approach and create a methodology that's going to work the best that it possibly can for the best number of students that it possibly can? And so the book was, yeah, a piece of that and a sharing of stories of both my time in the classroom, educators in our school in the classroom, other educators in other schools, um, and their experiences with some different project-based approaches, different ideas in the classroom, um, and, and really with the idea that, you know, if you if you go through and you read the different stories and look at the different projects, and maybe there's one idea in there that as an educator or as a leader, that we can do one thing differently in our classroom or in our school. And even that one thing, you know, if it's one thing a year or one thing a month or one thing a quarter. So we're not trying to completely reinvent the wheel and completely reinvent culture, but just slowly shifting like, hey, what if we add this one thing in the classroom? What does that do 
how does that shift our student thinking? How does that shift our educator thinking? Was that fun? Was that not fun? Did that work? Did that not work? Right? And just being able to start to experiment with those things. And for each of us, as we as we change one little thing, that's how we create change. And that's how we move forward. We're talking to Tanya Sheckley. She's the author of a new book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet. Tanya, chapter four, um, really the heart of your book for me, it, it's where you talk about engaging learners. That's the progressive pedagogy that we've been talking about. And it's this commitment to inclusion. Um, and, and so I, I love that chapter and the way that you described in, engagement for all. Um, is that really what you're trying to do at Up Academy? Absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, it was designed initially for my daughter who had cerebral palsy. And so much of what we see now is still separation of students with IEPs into special day classes or into special pullout groups. Um, and really, when we create universal accommodations within the classroom and provide sometimes even just small amounts of additional support, all of those students can thrive together in an environment. And we find, and lots of research has shown, that when we do that and when we include everybody together, everyone learns more and everyone learns better. And there's a story that I like to share um, with, a, a, she's a friend of mine, she's currently on our board of directors, but at our first day of kindergarten, Eliza's first day of kindergarten, and Eliza was walking in, I, I would hold on to her shoulders and she could support her weight and take steps, but she needed support. And so it was clear she had significant disabilities. Um, my friend, Susan, her daughter was already reading, already doing math, coming into kindergarten advanced. She was excited to see her progress and to see how well she did in school. And she took one look at my daughter and just went, oh no, there's a child with disabilities in my daughter's class. She's going to be distracting. She's going to hold everybody back. The rate of learning is going to slow. And there's, you know, all of these ideas that we have when we see others with disabilities. And frankly, I mean, before I had my daughter, I would have looked at it probably the same way. You know, growing up, special education was a dark corner in the school and a place where we just didn't go. Um, everything was separate. And so much now is still separate. But what happened in the classroom was our kids became best friends. They discovered that they both liked soccer. They both liked Shopkins. They both liked to play dress up. Um, and they both liked the same books. Um, and, you know, Eliza was reading by the middle of kindergarten. They were in the same math group together. Uh, and so it, it just became this, this understanding and definitely the friendship between the two girls but also with their families that when we do include all the students, not only do the students with disabilities thrive because now they're being given expectations that all students have, but all of the students who are quote unquote typical students also thrive because they're learning all of these different ways to work with people who are different than them, to communicate in different ways, to understand, to have patience, to have empathy, um, and, and all 
you know, all of these, and, and it works both ways, right? The, the neurodiverse students are learning the same things about their neurotypical peers. Like, how do I communicate with this person who doesn't think like me? Um, but we see this wonderful melding of inclusion. And when we can also create small class sizes where an educator can really have the opportunity to build strong relationships with every student and help to build those interpersonal relationships, both between the students and between the educator and the student, we really see this magical sphere of learning happening. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. In uh, chapter seven, you talk about the difference between a good student and a good learner. What, what is the difference? <laughs> when my daughter first started public school, they did parent education training. And one of the parent education training activities, they had someone come up and they had them give all the labels of a good student. He sits quietly, raises his hand to ask questions. He you know, doesn't leave the room to go to the bathroom unless he's been given permission. He's not disruptive. He helps his peers. You know, all of these things that we think of when you picture, I'm picturing Charlie Brown's school, right? All the students are in rows at their desks and they're listening to their teacher. Um, and so when we think of good students, that's often what we think of. But what what we really need as a society and as a planet is good learners. And these are the people who are curious, who have a burning desire to know the answer to a question. And how can we as educators and facilitators of learning really help our students to find the paths to the answers to the questions that they seek? And so how how can we help them to do research? How can we ask them, help them to ask the right questions? How can we help them to find the authority figures or the thought leaders or the experts in the field so that they can really ask those questions and get interesting and thought-provoking and in-depth answers? So versus a good student who is able to regurgitate what a teacher said on a multiple choice test, a good learner has taken this question and explored it in different facets and is able to come up with an opinion of what they believe an answer or a solution might be. Just a couple more quick questions, Tanya. Um, were there one or two people uh, on this journey, and particularly as you put this book together, as you developed your school, that were really important to you and helping to, to shape your views as a learning leader? Um, well, you know, as a person and <laughs> as a family, none of it would be possible without the support of my husband and my family, for sure. As, you know, as an educator, my father-in-law has been instrumental in, in sharing his life's work and research with me and with us as a member of our board and is helping us to sh create the education that we have. Um, my board member, yes, yes, Barry. My board member, um, Anne-Marie Robert Roberts, has been with me from the beginning, helped us to write out our articles of incorporation and get our 501c3 status and really launch the school. 
Um, she also develops a lot of our social emotional curriculum, trains all of our educators. Um, she's instrumental in creating the methodology and the culture of what we've created at the school. Um, and I would also mention uh, Marina Vasserman, a good friend locally who has also started a school and is about four years ahead of me in her journey of school leadership. And so having someone locally who can be seen and used as a mentor and a friend for those times when I just need a question answered about running a school specifically, or I need to vent about something that's happened that you know, it's just something that other, it's always good for us to have other people who do the things that we do and to have that, that belonging and that connection. Um, and she has been that person for me, both in school development and in personal development as a school leader. All things considered, would you, uh, would you now recommend to other people to consider starting a new school? And if so, um, give, give us one or two uh, tips for people thinking about starting a school. <laughs> That's a loaded question coming out of a pandemic. <laughs> um, but absolutely. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. It's all encompassing because it's not just developing curriculum and it's not just working with students and it's not just, you know, talking with families, but it's doing all of those things and sharing all of the all of the wins and all of the successes of everyone involved, but also having to have all of the difficult conversations as those challenges come up and arise. Um, it, it's extraordinarily rewarding. I'm excited to go to work every day, um, but there, I can't tell anyone that it's easy. <laughs> if they want to learn more about uh, opening a new school. What, uh, Give us a, a couple tips. Sure. So I think, you know, there's a few things, you know, looking around and having a good familiarity of the schools that are around, how, what do you want to create that's new and different from what's already there? Um, you know, there's, I kind of put a port into two buckets. There's the business aspect of, you know, the financing of the school, the creating the school, the business licenses, the for-profit versus nonprofit, the corporation structure, all of those pieces. And then there's the education piece. You know, who are you going to be? Who do you want to serve? What is your pedagogy? What is your methodology? Um, and so having an outline and overview of those two pieces, you know, how are we going to structure? How am I going to afford this? is this a logistically feasible thing to do? And how am I different? Who can I serve? What's the greater good that I can serve? Um, and creating those pieces and then starting to move forward from there. Another thing uh, people considering starting a school could do is read Tanya's new book. It's called Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet. Tanya, Thanks for your life's work. Thanks for Up Academy and for this new book and for joining us on the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team that make this podcast possible. Um, till we see you next week, keep leading, keep learning, and keep innovating for equity.